Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Faiz Al-Yafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. On the 3rd of March, 1924, almost 100 years ago to the day, the Ottoman Caliphate, which at its height covered Anatolia, much of the Middle East, North Africa, the Caucasus, and stretched far into Eastern Europe, was abolished through a vote in the National Assembly of the New Republic of Turkey. Long-term listeners will be aware that Ottoman history is a subject we've returned to many times on this show. This episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the turbulent final years of the Ottoman project. Hot on the heels of losing most of its European possessions during the Balkan Wars, the Sultanate had entered the First World War alongside Germany and Austria-Hungary against the Allied powers led by Britain, Russia and France. By 1918, its forces collapsed in Palestine and Macedonia, and with Allied forces free to march on the capital, the House of Osman signed an armistice bringing about the end of the war. What followed were four years of political struggle, communal violence and foreign aggression. Anatolia became a crucible in which old loyalties were fractured and remade into new nationhoods. The very fabric of Ottoman society was torn apart. The victorious allies mandated the partition of the empire's Anatolian heartland, and after a Greek invasion, the Romanian imperial forces rallied in defiance. But as the sultan turned towards the allies to secure his rule, they turned against him and proclaimed the Turkish Republic in the heartland of the old empire. I'm joined today by Professor Ryan Gingeris, a historian at the United States Naval Postgraduate School and author of The Last Days of the Ottomans, a book which tells the story of how an empire which lasted for six centuries could disappear in less than six years. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Faisal. It's really great to be here. Thank you. One of the reasons we've been able to go back to the Ottomans again and again on the podcast is that, as you point out in your book, Ottoman studies has undergone something of a renaissance in recent years. Why is there so much interest in the Ottomans these days? Um, I think it's a couple of reasons. Some of them are pretty obvious. I think a couple of them maybe not. I think it's because there is a great deal of novelty to it, given the fact that uh, so much of recent uh, events, recent crises have taken place within um, the lands of the former Ottoman Empire. I, I know for sure that for myself, one thing that really piqued my interest first was the outbreak of the civil war in Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. And that's when I first became really aware of the Ottoman Empire and its, um, you know, and its legacies. And I think too, you know, it, um, especially after September 11th, you know, Istanbul was one of the few places within the Middle East that I think was accessible for um, a lot of young scholars like myself. You know, there was you know, a, a time in which you know, traveling in different parts of the Middle East was growing a little bit more precarious, where Istanbul was you know, quiet, but also has this wonderful archive with you know, literally millions of documents that trace the origins of the modern Middle East. And there's still been, at least at the time, was really well understudied. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity to really make uh, an impact on the study uh, of a place that I think is really fascinating. Um, and I think in the end, you know, we've you know, been able to build on that that much further over the last 20 years. You say that in your introduction, that your intention in writing the book was to recenter the story of the Ottoman Empire's last years. What did you mean by that? Well, I think that you know, a couple of things, really, as quickly as I can. You know, number one, I think I wanted to write the book because when someone typically reads a history of the Ottoman Empire in its entirety, 
uh, a lot happens, you know, through the beginning and the middle. And when you finally get to the end, you know, it's such a dense period of time that the very last years oftentimes are dealt with as almost a kind of postscript. And in particular, what is sort of washed over is the fact that the Ottoman Empire does not end in World War One. And we typically think of the of the Ottoman Empire coming to an end in World War One because other empires come to an end in World War One. Austria-Hungary comes apart. Germany comes apart. Uh, the Russian Empire dissolves into chaos to be reformed as you know uh, as Soviet Russia and the Soviet Union. So it, it, there's this natural inclination, and and I thought you know frankly so much of what makes the contemporary Middle East actually happens during the four-year period between 1918 and 1922, and yet there's not really it wasn't really a book out there that took this peri- this period of time really seriously or focused on it really closely. And so I wanted to try to tell a story that, number one, you know, tried to emphasize the various degrees the end of the war shaped different parts of what we think of today as as the Middle East and the former lands of the Ottoman Empire, but also try, try to think of it not simply as synonymous with the origins of the state of Turkey. You know, really, you know, the, the origins of virtually all major states of uh, uh, of the Middle East, and certainly even the development of you know modern Greece, modern Armenia, and even you know as a kind of foreshadowing to the fate of European empires, a lot of it is is really centered on the fate of the Ottoman Sultanate, and so that's what the book uh, tries to do is tell that story. Well, let's start with that story then, because a lot of the the histories of the collapse, as you were saying, they they begin with World War One, and then it kind of ends. But you start at the end of the war in 1918, and you zoom in on those last four to six years where it all comes to pieces. So tell me, what was the state of the Ottoman Empire at that point, at the end of the war? Terrible. (laughs) It was was bad. Uh, So, you know, if you're talking about the year 1918 itself, you know, the year in which, you know, Germany with its back to the wall... Uh, undertakes this final desperate offensive, hoping to perhaps win some kind of peace, you know, salvage some kind of victory out of um, the First World War, things in the Ottoman Empire are far worse. You know, and you you foreshadowed it a lot, Faisal, in your introduction. Um, We see the collapse of Ottoman forces in the Levant, specifically in Palestine. Um, You know, Ottoman uh, control over its territories and what becomes Iraq is is has eroded and is becoming even more precarious. Um, and so, you know, the those sorts of, you know, aspects of, of the state of the Ottoman Empire is what often is foreground. And one thing that I think the book takes quite seriously and does so in a way that I think a lot of histories of the Middle East don't is to look at society. Um, society is really... Um, torn to pieces during the course of the First World War in a number of ways. Um, famine is uh, rampant in, versus, in virtually all parts of the Ottoman Empire from virtually the start of the war. Large numbers of people are taken off into the army, uh, never to return. Um, the, the, the death rate, the casualty rate is extensively high and adversely impacts all parts of the empire. And I think last but far from least, and this is something that is often, I think, uh, sanction, you know, sanctioned off from the typical narrative of the making of the modern Middle East. You were talking about a period that witnesses mass deportations, mass relocations of population, most notably of Armenians. And you know, these 
um, deportations, these relocations, needless to say, leave uh, an unfathomable death toll on Ottoman society, but also upends its economy. It upends the legitimacy of the Ottoman state. And so by the time we get to the end of the Ottoman war, I'm sorry, of the, of the First World War, um, there are really deep social divides, um, both in the countryside, but even in the capital itself. And so when it comes to the prospect of trying to look to the future, there's a lot of uncertainty. And arguably, though, I mean, one thing that really does stand out that in spite of all of this, there is still some degree of consensus around retaining the Ottoman sultimate, sultanate, some degree of Ottoman patriotism that continues to maybe not thrive, but endure in the hearts of large numbers of citizens. I think that is one of the reasons, we'll come to that last part about the the um, the desire for what would come next among the Ottoman peoples. But I, one of the things I liked about the book, I think, is that, as you said earlier, you take seriously this particular period. And it was a really astonishingly bloody four years, which left millions dead and millions more displaced. You call it um, apocalyptic. And this is after the First World War, which itself was apocalyptic. So in, in some respects, it should be no surprise that something on the scale of that has left divisions that have persisted all the way to the present day. You know, and, and just to footstep what you're saying and to take it that much further, you know, this is lost upon us, not simply because of the time that separates us, but in a lot of ways, you know, it's been eclipsed by subsequent crises. And I think one of the things that I wanted the book to do is really highlight degree, the degree to which this moment of really profound disjuncture and profound pain is elemental to the reason why not only you know the 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 20th century becomes such a you know such a such such a bitter period for for the region as a whole but one of the reasons why people today feel relatively divorced from the Ottoman Empire throughout so much of the Middle East it's because this period is often seen in hindsight as having rendered a verdict on the empire on its legitimacy, on its place yeah. in the lives of everyday people today. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. We'll come to that. I have a specific question on that. But l let's just talk about the date. When did the empire end? Because I think most people would say it's 1922. But then, of course, the caliphate continues for another two years. So there's a question about when exactly what we think of the as the Ottoman Empire ended. Well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, the you can pick any number of different dates um, and not necessarily be 100% wrong. You know, uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, founder of the Republic of Turkey, uh, identified the spring of 1920 as the end of the Ottoman Empire when the capital, or let's say the business of government uh, in the Ottoman Empire moved from Istanbul to Ankara and that uh, the city of Istanbul in the spring of 1920 fell under de jure um, uh, and, and de facto Brit, you know, British and French occupation. That, in his mind, was the end of the Ottoman Empire. But really, it's by a degree of cuts. That's certainly an important date. Um, the forging of a new constitution um, between 1920 and 1921 uh, by this uh, new government in Ankara, which more or less excluded the role of the sultan as a um, 
uh, as a governing force in in the government, you know, most certainly kind of foreshadowed um, what would happen a year later when he when the sultan is abolished. But also, one has to bear in mind that it's only in 1921 that the name Turkey is first used as the formal name for the government that presides over the territories of what we now think of the republic. And that up until that point, um, even you know, in the wake of the First World War, it was still the Ottoman government. It was still the Ottoman Empire. Let's talk about that a bit, about what it means to be an Ottoman or what it meant for them to be Ottomans. This question was, at that point, I mean, several centuries old, but there was something important about it in that specific period, because, of course, that is the period in which all of these, uh, there's this fragmentation going on, and the empire has to begin to start thinking about what exactly it means to be an Ottoman, what, what is the state that they are trying to save? Right. I mean, I think the notion as I mean, you, you, you put it really correctly, you know, and, uh, you know, at first blush, Faisal, is that the notion of being Ottoman is in a constant state of motion. It's in a constant state of motion because, number one, you know, nationalism is a relatively new force in politics beginning in the 19th century, but also the geographic confines of the Ottoman Empire is changing, it's contracting. And this is driving various degrees of conversation and debate over what Ottomanness means. Now, when we get to the stages of the First World War and immediately thereafter, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a really quite intensified period of debate since, you know, it's now being framed by a number of different profound existential issues. The issue that the empire had previously lost its Balkan territories, was potentially losing its, you know, its Arabic-speaking territories, the profound sense among many in the Ottoman administration that um, Arabs uh, had rebelled against the Ottoman Empire and therefore were traitors. Um, there was a sense among you know, an even perhaps even more um, distinct sense among elements of the Ottoman elite that Christians would no longer could be reconciled to the Ottoman Empire. And then you had really various degrees of opinion among the population at large, in which you see various degrees of, uh, of, uh, of fealty to the Ottoman Empire, fealty to it in terms of it's the government they pay taxes to, it's the land they live in, it's some it shapes some sense of what they think of as the culture or the bond with other citizens. It's a really eclectic story, and it one that could be told from many different perspectives. In that period, did it also then change the way these minority communities, the Greeks, the Christians, Armenians, Assyrians, the way that they thought of themselves, about their sense of identity? I mean, absolutely. And it, it, but it, I have to say that, you know, the, you know, various Christian communities, whether it's Armenians or Greeks uh, or, you know, um, Arab Christians or Nestorians or whoever, and, I'm, and I'm emphasizing this just to emphasize the sheer dis, um, you know, disparity between them, the diversity among them, but also within these communities, there was a real difference of opinion. And then there was a real difference of, of experience depending where you are. You know, I think, you know, we typically think of there being high concentrations of these groups within distinct parts of the Ottoman Empire, but rather, but truly they were distributed all over. And so when we talk about, well, what was the consensus of Greeks? It's hard to say in some respects because it's such a different story depending on where you're looking in the empire at different times. Mm. It's almost even hard to talk about it in terms of Muslims and Christians. Indeed. And I think, but one of the things that the war 
after the war settles, the so-called Turkish War of Independence, is that it renders a really quite distinct sectarian divide and ruling on the nature of citizenship, belonging, and history. And so it's from that point forward that quite definitively, the notion of Turkishness comes to be seen as being Muslim, and that the notion of even Ottomanness in retrospect is often seen as being something that Muslims uphold the most. And that more importantly, perhaps, non-Muslims either are rendered as somewhat as resident aliens within a, a state like Turkey, or they're expelled. And so I think with that, you know, we get an end to a large degree of this sense of ambiguity or, you know, uh, debate that had been such a, you know, an important part of the nature of the politics of the region up until the First World War. How much time did it take from the end of the First World War for this sense of Turkishness to come up and replace the sense of Ottomanness? And it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that Turkishness is conceptually a notion that is uh, becomes um, a viable concept, you know, or identifiable concept at the end of the 1800s. It only begins to really enter, let's say, official parlance or popular parlance during uh, the the years just before the First World War, but really intensifying during the First World War. But Turkishness, it should be understood, is still, you know, defined by a certain degree of ambiguity. Turkishness during the First World War undoubtedly means somebody who speaks, I'm sorry, who is who is a Muslim and somebody who perhaps speaks Turkish, but not necessarily Turkish, speaking Turkish by birth, but rather by choice, right? So conceivably, an Arab may be a Turk if they embrace Turkishness as their chosen idiom, not just, let's just say, something that they learn in school, but they embrace as a part of who they are. It's really during this period of time, the four years immediately thereafter, that a new, far more ingrained mythos comes to shape official parlance, which is that Turkishness is more than anything an inborn trait. We begin to see this embraced more and more by the likes of Mustafa Kemal and others who lead the country out of the Ottoman Empire into the Turkish Republic. We begin to see the idea of Turkishness being seen as a definitively ethnic trait set apart from being Arab, set apart from being Albanian or what have you. I wanted to ask you as a historian a more general question about identity and particularly something you just mentioned about the way that sometimes there is a conception of identity as revolving around language. And that's something that you also see in some parts of Arab nationalism, the idea that the Arab world doesn't need to be united by a racial identity, that of being Arab, but could be united by a linguistic identity, that of speaking Arabic. That was something that happened in other countries as well, but it's it seems to have I mean, it seems to have had a little small flowering around that period, and then it just went away. I, I, can I? Can you think of many places in the world where they imagine identity in a linguistic sense rather than a, a national sense or an ethnic sense? Sure. I mean, I think that in some ways, um, Chineseness is somewhat similar, and I think you know, when I think about Turkishness, not as an ethnic, you know, or as a derivative of an uh, of, of an ethnic group. Modern Turkishness is the an offshoot of an imperial language that existed for many 
centuries that was spoken by large numbers of people who learned it as the idiom of empire, not necessarily the idiom of day-to-day life. It was the idiom of governance. It was the idiom of philosophy. Um, it was it was of it had a distinct upper class connotation or a kind of elitist connotation that over time becomes associated with an ethnic group. Chineseness f- functions in a very similar way, at least in terms of what we think of as today Mandarin Chinese. And I would say too, Farsi is a kind of similar. It has a somewhat of a similar relationship with Iran, although there's greater amount of of territorial continuity when it comes to this, the nature of Iranianness, which does not exist in the case of the Ottoman Empire or Turkishness, and doesn't even necessarily exist in the case of Chineseness. You know that China as a territorial entity changes quite a bit over many centuries. But one of the things that's seen as the most enduring traits is language, and, the, and that is the language of the empire itself. I want to ask you about the politics of memory, uh, which is a big part of why the Ottomans are so fascinating. Um, the answer to the age-old question of what it means to be an Ottoman turns out that it turns out that nobody really knew, and it seems like it was almost a, a negative question that the subjects of the empire thought about it in the sense of what it meant not to be. But I wanted to ask you something that we also asked Eugene Rogan, who who wrote a book on the same period called The Fall of the Ottomans, because it's been striking to me how faint the memory of the Ottoman Empire seems to be in its former possessions. So as much as its rule clearly reshaped all of them, for better or worse, there's very little sense of a shared history across the old imperial territory, not even a a mutual solidarity about having the same um, oppressor. And I wondered if you had any insights into why that might be. I think there's, I mean, one could talk about lots of different reasons depending on where you're looking at the map. I think the the one that I think is most unifying is that it's very difficult for an everyday person, a you and me person, to really commune with the Ottoman past because it's a it's a past that is written down and can only be really experienced in the first person by knowing Ottoman Turkish. And Ottoman Turkish is a dead language. And, you know, it's a a language that even very few Turks speak, you know, are able to read themselves. So, you know, for you and I, you know, or at least they see speaking personally as an American, I can have a sense of empathy and and connection to the past, because I can open up a book, I can read the words of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington right, myself. Right. Yeah. You look at the, the Declaration of Independence, you look at the Constitution, and it's written in the same language you use today. Right, exactly. But not only that, I mean, people think about experiences oftentimes in the most personal of ways. You know, how their impressions are shaped are perhaps by how it shaped their family members, how it shaped their community. And I think in particular, you know, this period really cauterizes this sense of connection to the past, not only because of these you know, issues I just described, this issue of language and so this inability to actually read it, sort of get a sense of it directly yourself, but the defining moment that ends the Ottoman Empire is so terrible. And it is so... Uh, defined by defeat, by uh, the oppression of the state. And that has become ingrained in the ways in which things are remembered, or at least the ways in which people 
are compelled to relive them, be it in you know public ceremonies or within the, the classroom or just in kind of the day-to-day referencing to the world around them. So I think, you know, this is the thing that will long kind of prevent people from really getting a sense of having that shared sense of community. How do you interpret the the reassessment under the the government of uh, Erdogan uh, of that particular period? And you see that there are sometimes the symbols of the empire are deployed. Um, Some people have called the expansion foreign policy of neo-Ottoman. How do you think that use of those symbols and that political signaling makes a difference in terms of the politics of memory inside Turkey, outside Turkey? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, this is something that I, this is the thing I end the book on, is that, you know, the question of when does the Ottoman Empire end is, you know, seems so nice and neat in the sense that there is a point in time in which the the name is erased from the map and it's raised and it's replaced by Turkey. But, you know, for the immediate aftermath of uh, uh, of of politics and society in Turkey, there was a sense uh, at some level that there was continuity. And that maybe the dynasty was gone, but the state that they that people served, that they pledge allegiance to, was the same. It was just that they understood the state in a somewhat different way. And you hear this now in the words of Erdogan, but and this is a sentiment that's been building for a long time, that the Turkish state, as Erdogan has put it many times, is over a thousand years old. It is dated it dates back to when Turks first entered into uh, the entered into Asia Minor, established the first Seljuk Sultanate, and continued on under the auspices of rule by the Ottoman dynasty. And that the Republic is simply this state, but under a more legitimate, more um, uh, durable management uh, in the form of the Republic, in the form of, you know, government by the National Assembly and uh, in the, with the sovereignty based in the people, based in, uh, in the sovereignty of Turks. So, I mean, Erdogan basically has kind of brought this notion and made it more visible. But then as you also infer, he's uh, appropriated a lot of the imagery of the past as a way uh, of emphasizing both what he sees as Turkey's achievements and aspirations in the present and in the future, that Turkey, you know, intends to be great. It tends to be a power akin to what the Ottoman Empire once was, and that conversely, many of the uh, antag- antagonists, both at home and abroad, are still the same. And so in a lot of ways, you know, for Erdogan, the empire serves as an appropriate foil to explain what he wants and what he thinks people should fear. And do you think, in terms of the politics of memory, do you think that other places that were former possessions of the empire still have a a residual memory of it? Uh, The writer Alev Scott talks about this ghost empire in the Balkans, a kind of latent Ottomanism that lies under the surface and is just waiting to be reawakened. Is that something that you detect in some of these former possessions? Well, I mean... uh beyond sort of personal experiences, I mean, I think the main difference is that the Ottoman Empire will always serve as a foil for, you know, many of the former states uh, of that, that comprise territory in the Ottoman Empire, that their legitimacy is based on the fact that they gain their independence. 
you know, primarily from the Ottoman Empire, perhaps from another state as well, be it Britain or France or Italy or what have you. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that is lacking in Turkey. Turkey will, you know, continue to sort of be celebrated as this entity that embodies whatever people perceive as being the remainder or the kind of enduring legacies of the Ottoman Empire. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you dive deeper into everyday life in various parts of the former Ottoman world, elements of that, you know, of that culture endures. You can see it in the language, you see it in the cuisine, you see it to some degree in communal relations. I mean, it's still very much with us, but the main difference being, and I think this is the whole, this is one thing that I would emphasize, is the sense that while there are certainly continuities, continuities people can point to, um, that sense of collective belonging uh, uh, on a national level, it's gone. It's yeah. It, it, yeah. and it's not coming back. You see that nowhere in the former possessions. No, no. I mean, I think though, that's one of the things that, especially as somebody who uh, pays a lot of attention to Turkey and Turkish politics, that's still among the conceits that many, uh, at least some people, still hold on to. Is that there is this Ottoman world, and that there is a kind of community beyond Turkey's borders that looks at it as a kind of, you know, longstanding patron or brother or whatever sort of a analogy you want to use that bounds them to what, you know, one would consider the old heart of the empire. And I think that that for the most part, it's just, it's just not the case. Yeah. You look at the, the Declaration of Independence, you look at the Constitution, and it's written in the same language you use today. I wanted us to, to talk about the caliphate, because as you'll sure. be aware, the March 3rd this year will be the 100th anniversary of the, the end of the caliphate. Um, and I wanted to start by asking you about the last caliphate, uh, the last caliph, Abdul Majid II Osman Uglu. His brother, Mehmed VI, had been the last Ottoman sultan. But when he'd been forced to advocate by the Turkish Republic's National Assembly, they decided to preserve the caliphate as a ceremonial office. It passed Abdul Majid II, who reigned for two years, and then Ataturk abolished it completely. There's an interesting counterfactual there, because you can imagine a version of history where the institution of the caliphate endured, perhaps even to this day. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, it certainly is a counterfactual many, many people do entertain in one way, shape, or form. And even during the immediate aftermath of the abolition, there were some in Egypt and other parts of the, you know, of the Islamic world who hoped to retain it in some respect. And, you know, there were even congresses that were held in the hopes of trying to revive it or maintain it in some way. But one has to understand that, yes, there were deeply emotive connections between significant segments of the population in Turkey, but more perhaps importantly, elements of the elite who saw the caliphate as an important symbol. But we have to understand that the driving force during this period of time is Ataturk. Mustafa Kemal becomes president of the Turkish Republic, despite the fact that he has serious challenges in the form of rivals that are, who are among him and among a, in a population that not necessarily is fully reconciled to his rule. And so the idea of retaining the caliphate would have been impossible for him because it would have continued to serve as an alternative point 
of authority or a potential rallying point in opposition to him. And I think that's one thing that always has to be understood with respect to even the issue of the sultanate or the caliphate. It had always served as an emotive point either to rally people for or against things. And so I think Ataturk understood that. And that's one of the things that really led to its end and will perhaps kind of lead to the fact that it will never come back. You seem skeptical of this idea that it could have survived. And I I wonder if that's because perhaps today we conceive of the caliphate as being a religious office. But at the time, it sounds like you're saying it was very much part of the institution of politics and government. And so there was simply no way to get rid of one half of this political entity, the sultanate, but not get rid of the other half, the caliphate. Absolutely. Look, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, Ataturk's struggle or Mustafa Kemal's struggle during the Turkish War of Independence right after the First World War drew so much international attention was that he claimed that he was fighting to save the caliphate, that he was fighting to liberate it from occupation at the hands of the British and the French. And it's, it's this fact that brought millions of Muslims in South Asia to donate money, to demand that the British withdraw from the Ottoman lands. So he understood the emotive power of it in a political sense. And so to retain it, and this is precisely the death warrant that he uses to abolish it. He says that British Indian support for the retention of the caliphate serves as a way for the British to potentially continue to intervene into Turkish affairs, and he wouldn't have it. So I think you cannot necessarily see it as this sort of purely spiritual office, not only during this period of time, but even beforehand. I mean, it definitely was a political tool, even in the hands of the Ottoman Sultan, who held this office going back to the early 1500s. I want to get your take on this, because do you think there is a possibility that the caliphate will be restored? Because on the one hand, it seems hard to believe that such a major institution can just disappear without someone trying to bring it back. I imagine if the Vatican collapsed tomorrow, there'd be an attempt to resurrect it. But on the other, as you were pointing out with Ataturk's views on what the British were trying, because it is such a prominent office, any would-be caliph today is going to struggle to convince others to accept their claim, simply because of the power of the office. Well, I think that it's also, you know, the Pope has been internationalized and denationalized over the course of a very long period of time. You know, the Pope doesn't have to be Italian. Uh, In fact, I mean, there is now, you know, has been for a number of years, you know, an imperative that he become to represent more than just, you know, the historic center of the Catholic Church in a geographic sense of the term or in the political sense of the term. The caliphate does not have that luxury. It's always been associated with state power. And it, in particular, is the source of fierce debate in terms of who is the who possesses the right to take the office. Um, do you have to be a member of the Ottoman royal family? Well, no longer. The Ottoman royal family has been dispersed to all corners of the globe. Uh, should it be an should it be an Arab? Well, in this case, it's seen as therefore an office of Arab national power, Arab nationalism, which offends many Muslims. So, and most importantly, perhaps with the rise of the Islamic State, we've come to see it as an instrument of a presumable state power that was taking shape in the middle of the uh, uh, of the Levant in the Middle East. And so, I see it hard for it to become 
something that is revised and somehow divorced from politics. I just don't see it as being possible. I want to end then by asking you about what was lost with the end of the Ottoman Empire. I know that's a question that can seem dangerously close to imperial nostalgia, but I'm less interested in in what was lost with the fall of the dynasty than I am in terms of the collapse of the society that was shared by its subjects. And whatever else the empire may have been, it united a great number of peoples across these 600 years. Losing that is was and maybe is no small thing. I wonder how you interpret that loss now. I mean, as you point out, I mean, I, I think the end of the Ottoman Empire, what I would accent is the sense again of dissonance that many people who are the descendants of Ottoman subjects and citizens feel when it comes to the past, that they feel a sense of alienation to their ancestors, to even their family who lived and, you know, worked and whose lives and dreams were shaped by this place. And I think the thing that makes the contemporary realities, frankly, dangerous is that Ottoman history, therefore, is put in the hands of a small subset of people who can interpret it. And that leaves it open to a great deal of manipulation and ultimately to um, the idea that most people are not capable of exploring or feeling that sense of, uh, of connection to the past themselves. They have to rely on somebody else to do it for them. And I think that's a genuine shame. Now, that is a really genuine shame that, that for large numbers of people, the history, that history is such a foreign place. Ryan Jinjeras, thank you very much. Thank you so much again for having me. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can find Ryan on Twitter at Nords41 and find his book, The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire, out now in all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us 